Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for those ancient words, and now we come to look at those ancient words, and we pray for your presence and wisdom and power and declaration of your word, particularly of how this word, one simple word, is able to spread into countless revivals. And uh, we thank you for the power that is found in your word. Be with us now as we come to analyze this passage of scripture. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There was a man who once came to Gypsy Smith, a celebrated English evangelist of an earlier time. And he asked him how to have a revival. Well, Gypsy told the man, do you have a place where you can pray? And he said, yes, was the reply. Well, I'll tell you what to do. You go to that place and take a piece of chalk along. Kneel down there and with the chalk, draw a complete circle all around you. And pray for God to send revival on everything that is inside the circle. Well, friends, he said, he said these words, stay there until he answers and you will have revival. Friends, that's what's happening in our text tonight as we come to Jonah. There is a sense in which tonight we will experience a revival. But the person that needs reviving, in other words, to be actually awakened the most, is the messenger himself, Jonah. In other words, God has to open his eyes to something, something that happened through his... We come to chapter 3 as we are going through the book of Jonah. And we now come to see, last week we saw the deliverance of Jonah in chapter 2, the disobedience of Jonah in chapter 1. Why we come to the discourse of Jonah? Pardon my voice. Uh, I'm, I'm losing a little bit. I got some candy, but bear with me tonight. So, our text, uh, chapter 3, opens... The second act in our story, okay? The previous was more of a prayer and a poem. After all the time in the sea, last two chapters, now we come to back to the dry land. As you recall, the issue that we saw, for those who were with us in the evening service, was Jonah disobeying, and things went from bad to worse, you remember? It's to the point that he had been swallowed by the well, and then the fish, the great fish, and now he's spitted on the dry land, and he's back on track. He now obeys God. He goes to Nineveh, and he begins his preaching. This is where the book of Jonah stands out among the prophetic books. Why? Because most prophecies just recollect the content of the message. Here, on the other hand, the, the, the content of the, the sermon is very it's very short. It's a very few words. It's one single verse with very little detail. It doesn't even mention God's name. It's a very simple message. And yet, surprise, surprise, the entire city of Nineveh repents. That word that you see three times in our text says they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth, that was a garment made of goat or camel hair that was worn in the uh, Old Testament as a sign of mourn or anguish. 
that together with fasting and throwing ashes on your head was a symbol of their repentance. The Nineveh repents. The focus as we will begin to see today and next time is not so much the message that Jonah tells them, which is very simple, but the compassion of God, even toward those who, like the Ninevites, they do not belong to the community of God, the Israel. They're not part of the covenant community of Israel. In fact, Nineveh is the enemy of Israel. A cruel imperial power that constantly threatened God's people. That's why Jonah didn't want them to repent. However, God forgives these enemies. He grants them repentance. Which becomes a, a, a reality check for the so-called people of Israel. Back in the northern kingdom. Such quick repentance flies in the face of Israel, represented here by Jonah's stubbornness, that despite the fact that he's a prophet, as we'll see next time, is so out of touch with God. And what do we learn from this incredible revival uh, out of this such reluctant message that Jonah sends? Is that just as God gives a second chance to Jonah, because he, he, he himself repents and preaches, the message that God ordered him to preach, God here gives the Ninevites a second chance. Why? Because they all repent and believe. That is what we see in chapter 3 here. First uh, point there on your outline is the fact that, unlike chapter 1, something is changing here. While the wording seems to be the exact series of order that was given in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, now we're in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and they're repeated exactly there's a thing that changes. This time the, the prophet obeys. He doesn't disobey. Verses 1 to 3. God repeats the charge a second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In case Jonah had forgotten, God has not changed his mind. It also shows us that God gives a second chance. He, he could have left Jonah, we already said that last time, or put him to death to find a better servant. Instead of no, he, he continued to persist in pursuing Jonah. The point is that, the second commission is undeserved. Jonah had transgressed God, tested his patience, paid for his disobedience. However, out of God's undeserved grace toward this prophet, as we saw last time, God could have left him drowning at sea and perfectly remained just. He could have found someone else to perform the task. Instead, no, it is surprising that he even talks to Jonah at all. Here. Not only that, but despite Jonah's failure, he renews his calling upon this same man. Isn't that a picture of God's grace toward his most imperfect servants? Even when, like Jonah, they had failed, even when they had failed to be wholly faithful, God's call remains, is confirmed, is repeated. Now, this is not an excuse for his failure. You, you, you saw last time and, and, and in chapter 1 how it costed him everything to disobey. Yet it gives us a window in the forbearance of God. You may think, you know, I have disappointed God in, maybe I have disappointed Him once too much. And the question sometimes called, is He done with me? And the beauty is that in our Christian walk, the Lord brings seasons of renewal after the chastisement. If we respond in the right way. When we fall, 
The enemy wants us to think that we're done. But God remains a God of forgiveness. That is the point of this story of Jonah. And he grants a second chance to those who turn from their sin and obey the Lord. So he says, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. The verse, the arise and go, are showing you the urgency and the need to respond to this call. You can imagine in the, in the ear of Jonah, this, this had been painful to hear this call again. Because it was probably a flashback to his previous response of disobedience. And what followed in drowning in the storm and then ultimately ending in the belly of the fish. Nineveh remains the inescapable destination that he has by God's calling. And the only difference with chapter 1 is now our text says, preach or literally call, proclaim or shout. Preach to that city the message that I will tell you. Call out against it. Proclaim. It's uh, the proclamation that I will tell you. Jonah is to repeat the official call to repentance. An appeal that God wants to make to these Ninevites. It's a play on word. It's almost as if God says, preach the preaching that I preach you. Do as I say, say what I do. Referring to the same previous message of chapter 1. And just like Jonah's sermon is very short, so God's instruction on what is to be said is very brief. The emphasis on this is obedience. Not so much the content of what God wants him to say, but the fact that he needs to obey. He needs to go. Not so much, uh, again, the details. God has a purpose to save the souls of these people. And Jonah this time obey, verses 3. What changes from chapter 1 is the response. You know the story of Elijah. When all these emissaries are come, coming to get him. And he, he calls fire on heaven on, on, the, on the messengers. And the first one comes and, and they burn and die. The second one comes and they burn and they die. And the third one now, the messengers comes. It's like, please Elijah, I pleaded you. Spare my life. And this time he answered. This is the, the case for Jonah here. After surviving a shipwreck, drowning, and three days in the belly of a fish, do I have a choice? This time around, he has no other option but to obey. So he goes to Nineveh now. Immediately. Straight toward it. He doesn't wait. He doesn't detour anymore. He doesn't want another disaster for disobeying the Lord. You could say that he has learned a lesson here. He has been forced to obey. And so he acts, our text says, according to the word of the Lord. To the letter. In complete obedience to the commandment of God. That is the point that Jonah, God gives Jonah a second chance. And this time he obeys. Now sometimes the path to actual obedience takes time. Not because God's command is unclear toward us, but because of our stubbornness, isn't it? Our seeded sins that we have allowed to take root through the years. Our disobedience that we have rationalized or justified. Until it leads us to, like Jonah, to lose everything. And perhaps we think we know better than God. We say, Lord, show me your will. But we have already decided in our hearts what we're going to do. And it's definitely not what is right. And perhaps we have a love affair with our sin that is destroying us. And so we're unwilling to repent. Friends, do not test God's patience once too much. Just like at this point, John understands the absolute necessity to obey. 
So this story calls us to obey God without question for our own good. To the yacht and tittle of what God commands us in His Word. Especially when it comes to warning people around us about the coming judgment. And we instead keep silence. So this, this morning, of, instead of letting the, the light shine, perhaps because we fear to offend people or we have to deal with uncomfortable or awkward situations. I like the, the call of, to the prophet Ezekiel. 33, verse 8. If I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to dissuade him from his way, then that wicked man will die in his iniquity. Yet I will hold you accountable for his blood. That's serious business. If we're Christians, we know the gospel, and we don't share it, we don't warn the wicked to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ, then we're disobeying God in a crucial point. Don't let God lead you in a crisis or lead us as, as a crisis in as a church before we finally obey the Lord. Let us share this gospel. Let us go where He sends us. Let us warn who needs to be warned that judgment is coming if we don't repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. This is the part of the divine message we see. Our second point, verses 3 to 4, the second part of verse 3 to 4. Now God speaks. Here comes God's word. And it's, it's comprised of a three days mission. Jonas is now approaching the site of this Nineveh. And the text comments that it was an exceedingly great city. A very large city, okay? It was perceived back then as a, a large city. I mean, you think about 120,000 people. It says on Jonah 4 verse 11. Which at the time was enormous for those standards back then. Almost beyond compare for an Israelite who comes from the small towns of the northern tribes. This was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It had great walls. It was full of splendor. It was unconquerable. It was great not just in size, but also in connection to the ending of the story of Jonah. It was great before God. Big before God. That's what our text says. In the estimation of God, this was a big city. Densely populated, therefore, in the estimation of God, it was full of souls in need of repentance and faith. And it was such a big city that it took three days journey. You walk from one side to the other. We already encountered this word, three days in the belly of the fish, three days sermons. Why this number three? Again, Jonah is a book that preaches to us of someone who is coming, who will be greater than Jonah, who has mercy the plot of this story is, is God having mercy on fallen mankind if they repent. He comes to preach repentance. That's the first word of the gospel. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Faith in His person and message. To all the nations, not just Israel. This is the hope of the gospel in Jonah. That we Gentiles, because we are not Jews by birth, can come to God through this radical transformation as He brings us to Himself and we become part of His true spiritual family. The fact that Jesus becomes the Savior of the world, not just for Israel and big cities, countless souls dying and going to hell, matter to God. Now, three days walk would equal 60 miles all around the city. Uh, we think about Los Angeles. Uh, you know, Los Angeles actually is as big as an entire region of Italy. I mean, it's unbelievable. Or I remember when I went to China, I went to Shanghai. And I was taking the subway to go from one side of the city of Shanghai to the next. 
It's, it's incredible. It took hours to just go through the subway from one side to the other. Same thing I had when I went to South, South America, Brazil. You take the, the airplane, you arrive to Sao Paulo. Goodness, it's like an ocean of, of, of buildings. You see it from above in an airplane before you land, and it looks like an ocean of houses. When you have that perspective, however, it helps you to realize how big, but also the heart of God for the salvation of countless people made in his image. So verse 4 says, Jonah enters the city. This is the first day of his walk. He wins his hesitancy, and he begins to preach. He preaches judgment. Judgment from God is coming upon you all. It's almost like a fire and brimstone type of sermon. His words must have sounded like an alarm of, to the hearers of a coming invasion of some sort of cataclysm. And it's, it's, it's ironic how this sermon is only made of three words. The second part of uh, verse 4. The content of this sermon is surprisingly few simple words. There's no theological introduction, no rhetorical skills, no persuasive speech, no specific sins mentioned, no condemning of their idolatry, no instruction of God's law, no compelling appeal, no conditional hopeful promise, no mention of the possibility of repentance. He doesn't even mention the miraculous events of the storm and the fish that brought him there, which could have been compelling, obviously. All of that is absent. In fact, it's a very short sermon. The shortest sermon in the Bible, in fact. To the point. Now, I cannot preach that short. Three words. But I promise I'm not going to keep you too late tonight. It is through the foolishness of preaching that God has been pleased to achieve salvation. Not through earthly wisdom. What we see here is that while God uses means in conversion, the power to save does not lie even in the mean or in the channel, but in God. In fact, look at the, the, the story. Jonah is reluctant. And the reaction of, from the Ninevites proved this very point. That it didn't depend on the channel. It didn't depend on the words. It didn't depend on anything. That should encourage us. If God is willing, He can accomplish salvation, and then no obstacle will be able to stand that. So Jonah cries out, and he begins to preach. He shouts to the crowd that gather around him like an open-air preacher. And he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is uh, telling us the extent of time that remains to the Ninevites before they will be destroyed. And at the end of the 40th day, your time runs out. Judgment is imminent. Therefore, action is required. This time of, of testing and waiting, 40 days. God coming down just as at the time of Moses when he stood on Mount Zion to judge. And after that, Nineveh will be your beloved city will be completely destroyed. By this simple prophecy, a city will be smashed and brought to dust by the divine intervention, just like we saw in Sunday school with Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that is the same word here used, the overthrow, that some have speculated could, could be Jonah hoping that Israel could conquer 
the city. But the divine act of sovereignly destroying, like Sodom, it's what's in view here. It seems from chapter 4 that Jonah might have, have a particular pleasure in declaring the doom of these pagan enemies of Israel. And his reluctance is telling to us. He's almost calling for God's wrath to fall on the pagans who deserve it. That's, that's his heart and his bad attitude right there. Also, his sermon might have been so short because he was still obeying only reluctantly. There's something that needs to happen in Jonah, we'll see in chapter 4. He, in other words, he was afraid they will repent. So he's, he's uh, hoping they will ignore these few words. So let me say these few words. Go back home so that I can say, God, I did it. I did my task. And let's hope that they don't repent. I mean, what is missing in John again? Arcee Sproul says, The big difference between mercy and justice is that mercy is never, ever obligatory. Jonah doesn't have any heart for the sinners. That the default nature, like everyone else, is just judgment. Jonah is proclaiming the message of doom to the Ninevites, but he's doing that reluctantly. I mean, Jonah should have noticed something else beyond his prejudice as part of the people of God, better than the Ninevites. Something about the heart of God towards sinners, that although they are worthy of God's judgment, yes, they are still made in His image. They are still His creation. There's a lot of them, a lot of people in this city. But this is what God says. Ezekiel 33 again, verse 11. I take no pleasure, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather than they turn from their evil ways and live, and in the New Testament is the same thing. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Yes, we do have to preach doom in obedience to the commandment of God. But we don't stop in doom. There are some preachers that actually delight in just doom. But doom is meant to prepare you and to humble you so that you receive the mercy of God through the gospel. And in light of this, we preach the gospel willingly, not reluctantly like Jonah. Not out of hate for the sinner, so they know they're going to hell, but we provide no way out of it through the cross. See, we must publish everywhere the news that Jesus gave up His life freely to save lost sinners. So sinner, the same call to repent and believe still goes out tonight. Even your time, my time, we don't know how much is left. They, they had 40 days some more, some less, no matter how long. It, it, there's a still a timetable that st still runs out. God gives another chance and another chance. The hand of grace extends, not just to backsliding prophets like Jonah, but even to the worst sinners ever, like the Ninevites. And so don't let this warning pass unnoticed to lead you to the ultimate loss. Because the beauty of our story is verses 5 to 9, is that the people actually obey. That is the everyone, verse 5. The second and even greatest surprise is not only that this is the shortest sermon recorded in the Bible, but is how despite Jonah's reluctance, this short sermon actually managed to accomplish the conversion and the revival of so many souls. And the reason is definitely not the sermon. 
It's not Jonah's cleverness. I mean, look how reluctant he is. It is the fact that despite, despite even himself, God accomplishes salvation. What we see here in verse 5 is that all the people of Nineveh believed God. Believed in God. Now, they could have mocked Jonah or tried to arrest him. Like, sadly, how many Israelites treated the prophets of God. Persecuting them, mocking them, arresting them, ignoring their, uh, the warning. Or if they heeded, they, they still could pack their stuff and run for the hills. Instead, what do they do? Surprisingly, they believed in God. That means they allowed the words of Jonah to enter into their hearts. They believed God despite they're not part of the people of Israel. This might be an hint of, to the beginning of their conversion. I mean, I'm telling you, literally they're saying amen. That word, and they believed God, is the same word said of Abraham in Genesis 15, referring to his faith and how his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. These Ninevites are listening to the prophecy. They're trusting in the word of God of doom through the prophet Jonah. And they became convinced of the truth of this judgment. They're giving credence to the message from God. Not only that. There's something key here. Their belief doesn't just end by saying, Oh, we believe you, Jonah. We believe you are from God, Jonah. Thank you for preaching to us, Jonah. No, they began to pursue actions. They, they really show through their action that they believe this will happen. That you repent because you really believe this is a possibility. And so in light of that coming disaster, something must be done while there is still time. What do they do? They proclaim a fast. The news spread like wildfire throughout the town. Fast is abstaining from food and drink, to focus on prayer, to make supplications to God in a moment of need, in regret for your sins and wrongdoings, and the loss that is about to come through the divine judgment. They do this not just individually, they proclaimed it as a community, as an entire city. Back when our nation was Christian, oops, yeah, there was such a time, we used to have a, a Washington, George Washington, calling for a day of fasting and humiliation in prayer for the entire nation, 1775, to avert the judgments of God. That was such a time. And so here in the old city, even put on sackcloth. As I said, this was an ancient custom. You wear, you wear a very coarse and rough fabric from flax or hemp, which is very uncomfortable to wear. But it signified something. It signified repentance, that you're mourning for your sin. It's a token for your grief, your self-humiliation, your abasement. That the simple sight of a person in sackcloth was cause, causing people to tremble and to feel the need of turning away from their sin. It's like you dress in a burlap. I don't know if I'm spelling it right. You're showing to God that you repent. And you do this, look at our text, from the least to the greatest. The entire city, from great to small, from all ranks of society, from rich to poor, from famous to obscure, from leaders and followers, from the youngest to the oldest. This is the highest degree of repentance that you can even imagine. It's a, a way of saying for the entirety of the city being involved in a revival of 
complete, widespread, total repentance. Even the king. Look at verse 6 and 9. Verse 6 to 9. The message of Jonah came word of mouth even to the king of Nineveh. This is the richest and most powerful person in town. And surprise of all surprises for, for all of us. Even the king. Even the most powerful. And until then he was probably the most wicked man in town. Gets up from his throne. He removes and lays aside his fancy royal robes. He covers himself with the same sackcloth. And he sat in ashes there on the ground in the dust. As a sign of repentance. I mean that's a very humbling thing to do. If you're a king of a, of a kingdom. And for him to do that, it means that he means it. Unlike the so-called Israelite kings. Oh man, you look at the Israelite kings. King Ahab. You look at King Manasseh. You king, one king after the other. They were so wicked. And however, their heart was hardened. Yeah, a few times they repented. But overall they didn't. And here, even this king repents. Verses 7 to 9. From being this individual matter, the king wants to ensure that every single citizen repents. See how meticulous he is. So he makes this edict. He makes a decree, a proclamation, public, to be published like a postcard throughout the town, citywide. And he lists the specific details of the repentance that he wants to see in the entirety of the time. Neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flocks, let no one drink water, nor eat food, put on sackcloth, both man and beasts. I mean, everything that has life in it. Everyone needs to be covered with sackcloth. Even the beasts. I mean, they're so meticulous in their repentance that they went even beyond what was required. Apparently, beasts are part of that whole creation that groans together in the pains of childbirth, obviously. It's a funny view, however, to see beasts dressed in sackcloth. I mean, animals cannot repent. Animals don't have soul. I know some people ask, you know, do cats go to heaven? Uh, I, don't, I, would, I would say no. I mean, there's a, there's a soul aspect here. People and animals alike, however. Literally every single one, by order of the king, must repent. And, look how it continues. Cry mightily to God. Earnestly. Not just a cry, a simple call, a simple prayer, but do so with strength. Do so with intensity. Pray with all your forces, loudly, urgently, fervently. And, and, and then he acknowledges the judgment is right, by the way. He says, yes, yes, let us turn from our evil ways. He's demonstrating true contrition. The king of Nineveh, that wicked city. I mean... This order from the king is unprecedented and incredible in the entire Bible. He's saying everyone needs to turn away. That means give up. Turn back from his evil way. I mean, remember these Assyrians, okay? If you know some of your Old Testament history, Assyrians were vicious people. Their incredible sin shows us that they need to renounce. There is a renunciation that happens in repentance. From this habitual violence. That, that, that's what, what they were known for. Injustice, iniquity. I mean the violence of the Assyrians included, for example, people would cut people's tongue of anyone who would speak against their gods. They would cut your tongue. If you say something against a particular 
false god. I mean, they were cruels. But the king here is saying, turn away from the iniquity that is in each one ends. All the evil ways of living, put your evil life behind. Abandons it all behind. And you must do this with all your might. I mean, that's what true repentance is. And it's, it's as if, you know, a wicked president of the United States starts to turn around and says, we have sinned. We have sinned. And let everyone in this nation cry mightily to the Lord and fast and pray. And look how it continues. Who can tell? Who knows? Maybe, perhaps, God will forgive us. He's, he's adding to this talk to his citizens a hopeful look at repentance. Just like Joel 2 verses 13 to 14 says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. Seems the, the king, although he's a pagan king, is aware of sometimes God in his mercy can give opportunity to repentant sinners. He's hopeful. He's trusting that if they repent, God will now relent. This word is repeated here and in verse 10 literally means regret. Allowing yourself to be sorry. However, let me say something here. I know some translations say change of mind. God changes his mind or or repent, which uh, it's a play on word here, but there is a parallel between the repentance of people and God relenting. I would say the word relenting is better from sending disaster. What I mean is that this doesn't mean that God changes his mind. I know some translation says this, other verses with the same word, as if there is a change in the character of God. Genesis 6, 6, Exodus 32, 14, Amos 7, 6. No, what is in view instead is God is free to, uh, to change the announced judgment on the basis of the fact that we repent. Despite the fact that, despite the fact that He already knows before we do so, because God knows all things, He still condescends and responds to our repentance, our trust in Him. So we see here that His sovereignty, His Lordship does not abolish the real impact of our choices. Of our responsibility. We're still responsible for our actions. So rather than changing his mind. Because God has unchangeable uh, things that he ordains. If you were with us in our Baptist catechism. We were going through that. God can appropriately respond to our change. By seizing a particular course of action. That's what's going on here. He, he, he said he was going to judge them. But through a gracious act from himself. This is a possibility. And we know from other scripture. I mean, for example, 1 Samuel 15 verse 29. God is not a man that he should change his mind. That, that, that instance is very important because in the same passage, there's two, two uh, parts of this word. And also Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. You can look also James 1.17. Numbers 23.19. What, what, I, what I mean here is that since God knows all things... The word here doesn't mean any repentance or change of mind in God. Otherwise, he would no longer remain perfect in his knowledge. It's just pointing to you the fact that God responds to your action, taking place in time, but there's no change in, in his purposes. 
but, but look at how it continues. And God may, why not? Turn away His fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's the king again. God may withdraw His burning anger. I mean, God is it's, it's burning hot against the wicked. And, and He's pleading, maybe God will stop being angry if we meet His terms by repenting. He will change His sentence against us and He will forgive our sin. So that we may not perish. So that He will not die and be destroyed. Maybe if we repent, He will spare us. He will let us live. I mean, this is a confession of faith and it's parallel to what we've seen with the sailors in chapter 1. The difference is the size of the conversion. I mean, chapter 1 was few sailors in the ship. Here we have 120,000 people. You hear testimonies from the great awakenings that used to be taking place in, in America, in our nation. Uh, you can read them, for example, Jonathan Edwards. and During in this, these great awakenings, the testimony of people and just how God was melting the hearts of countless individuals toward the reality of their need to repent. Their need to give up this uh, uh, wickedness. And, and, and with a childlike attitude, just like the king is showing here, turn to the Lord. Totally. Totally ran about. The sad untold reality, friends, that the author of the book of Jonah wants you to see is that the very rarely the northern tribes of Israel heeded so quickly and thoroughly the call of repentance from the prophets. Despite God sent so many prophets to Israel. Despite the fact that they had the law of God. They had the greater revelation of scripture. All that they did was complaining. Getting offended, ignoring the call to repent, despising God's word and the prophets to the point of persecuting the prophets. But the point here is that we have God's heart for people who are not part of the people of God and they repent. Whereas those who are supposed to be part of the people of God are not repenting. We have a divine revival, something that comes from God, not from men. Likewise, when revival happens, there's no need of advertisement. There's no need of even human means. Ultimately, the world will know about it. And to our great surprise, therefore, literally everyone in Nineveh heeds the message of the prophets and repents. I mean, you could not imagine a more thorough repentance than what, what takes place in this passage. This is an unparalleled Awakening. I mean, does that describe the way in which we in this nation, you think about the entire nation of America, or even us individuals, the way in which we deal with our sin, with this meticulous approach? Is this our response whenever God calls out our sins? Do you heed the warning of God's words of this coming judgment over any unrepentant sinner? Do you act now in the present in light of that coming judgment? Which is real, by the way. Which is eternal. Are you seeking through repentance and faith to avert such eternal judgment? That's the only mean available to us. Do we humble ourselves? And I say all of us. Do we go out of our way to seize our bad course of action? Do we display even this hopeful faith in the mercy of God as we engage in those actions? Because if that's not the case... 
then there's no understanding or display of what true repentance consists of. Friend, what matters in the end of day is not words, but facts, actions. The verdict of Christ, and we see this in the gospel, remains. The man of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew 20, 12, verse 41. Jesus said this when people were asking for a sign to remember from our morning study on John. But we already, he already gave them the, the ultimate sign. The sign of Jonah is the death of Christ on the cross. And his resurrection three days after. Therefore, they had no excuse for remaining in their unbelief. Not only they failed to both repent and believe after hearing the message of the gospel of Jesus, but they ultimately wanted to kill even the Son of God. But again, what we see here, friends, in this story of Jonah is that national repentance is a real thing. Jeremiah 18, verse 8 says this, If that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. I do believe that entire cities, states, nations can indeed experience the same awakening, turning to God, and also God turning to them. We often mention this passage, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, which remains true. If my people were called by my name, which means repentance starts in the church shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Friends, this nation has seen great and mighty works of repentance in the past. There was a time where people were, you hear of revivals, where people were convicted of sin, coming under the mighty presence of God. Feeling all of their shame and wretchedness. That, that's what happens when you have a revival. It starts with that. An acknowledgement of their wickedness. The present, however, no one, no one seems to be repenting. Instead you hear people are more and more hardened in their sin. We are descending deeper and deeper into, into the obscurity. Deeper than ever. At the, at the, at the speed of light. Sin has grown so bold in our nation. God has been rejected and the effects is God abandons us. And these effects are felt all around our societies that we don't even realize. What happens in Nineveh is a phenomenal. It's a phenomenal thing just like the church in China. It's one thing that encouraged me in China is that they don't have all the freedoms and blessing we have. And yet I... I was there for a few weeks. I saw Christianity grow so much under communism. So many thirsty souls. They have zero uh, theological understanding, but they, they are thirsty. They, they have to do in secret. And, 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 and they're, they're coming in droves. And here in the West, you go to Europe, you come to America, you see a prevailing apathy toward the reality of a coming judgment. So... With that, let's move now to our last fourth point. Because they repent, God forgives. Verse 10. 
God relents from his judgment. Guess what? I mean, there's no passage with greater surprises than Jonah chapter 3. God saw their works. He saw that what they did, that they turned from their evil ways. And so in accordance with what, what, he, what, what he saw, he relented from, from sending disaster. Remember, this is from our human standpoint. It looks like, like, like God is reconsidering. But obviously, He's more allowing Himself to act in kind according to our actions. The, the, the shocking truth in Jonah is that He shows mercy now. He relents from sending calamity, disaster, and destruction. He originally threatened to do that. But our text says, He, he did not do it. This wording again emphasizes over and over again the shocking fact. That because Jonah is shocked here. It's like God is not judging them. We'll see next time. He, he's not happy about this turn of events. He wanted them to perish. But mercy, friends, triumph over judgment here. Because, because of their repentance, God now relents from destroying them. What, what, was it unfair for God to forgive them? That's what Jonah felt. However, God's simple promise that... He will relent if we repent is a formula that cannot be done away with. That no matter the background or the circumstances or the obstacles, nothing can stop it. If God in His grace grants you that repentance, God's promises that anyone who truly repents and truly believes in Him and in His word will experience forgiveness. If you turn away from your sins... If you trust in what He did for you at the cross. If you realize that He was indeed overthrown in your place. To take your calamity upon Himself. That is how God has planned to forgive your sins. No matter how wicked you've been. He can spare you to the, of the coming judgment like He spared the entire city of Nineveh. Despite their wickedness. But the point is that they actually turned from their wickedness. That there's enough grace for everyone. So it's an invitation for us to pray. Even beyond us. For entire cities. Entire nations. Who are, the, are like our nation on the brink of judgment. That they may learn from Nineveh before it's too late friends. That, that this story shows us that God is a God of second chances. That he uses even imperfect, sinful human beings like Jonah. And through his mercy, he brings this deliverance to countless people. An entire city experiences a revival. He does this first through a reluctant prophet. Through few words. So that God and not man gets the ultimate glory. You see, Jonah's sermon teaches us that Preaching has this supernatural component beyond even the means of preaching. Even a reluctant prophet. That when God's word is taught faithfully, we can trust that like in a story, it can penetrate even the most sinful hearts. That God's supernatural message gets through. That is because the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged word to accomplish whatever the Lord sent that for. To completely transform broken sinners. And what, what we look at the results, we must realize that God is actually at work here. God alone has the ultimate authority to punish or forgive whoever repents. That's what Jonah wanted the 
actually overstep his boundaries here. We have no say in it, not even Jonah. What the author wants you to see is that these pagans repented at once, all of them. And sadly, the, the Israelites who self-righteously felt that they were better than their sinful enemies, while they kept ignoring and ignoring and ignoring and ignoring and ignoring God's word, they did it. They repented. And so God relented from disasters. Well, let's see next time who is not happy about this. The final chapter 4. Jonah. He struggles with this sin of vengeance. And we'll learn that while everyone needs a second chance, some of us like Jonah may need a third or a fourth chance. Let us pray.